Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here with you today. B'shem Hashem, Ma'asev and Asliach. Can you hear me in the back? You're saying no. Okay, okay, here it comes. Better? Okay, sorry about that. Can we make that a little higher? I'm a rookie, so give me a little. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'd like to dedicate the class today, Lilu Nishmat, my father, Yeshua Rafael Ben Rachel. He loved Israel, he loved learning, and he always came with me to my classes. He sat in the front row, and so if he was here today, I know he'd be sitting right in the front row with us. I'd also like to dedicate it to my mom. Her name is Yafa Esther, and the class has really been inspired by her. She's beautiful like Esther, and she's strong-willed, and um, she raised us all to have that feeling that we could accomplish whatever we put our minds to. I'm going to introduce you to an Esther that you may not have already known before. So, the title, Rivka, oh, sorry, uh, oh, Rivka and Esther. A couple of people stopped me in the hall and said, why did you choose those two women and what on earth could they possibly have in common? So before we get to Rivka and Esther, and hopefully um, we will find the similarities amongst them, the story really starts early on, and it starts in the Megillah. Before we even talk about the Megillah, or any Sefer for that matter, the appropriate thing to do would be to try and categorize what genre the Megillah would belong to. As we know... The Megillah made it into the canon of Tanakh, literally by the skin of its teeth. It was fought over. Uh, Esther herself, they say, had to um, campaign for it to be included. And for obvious reasons, the Megillah did not have the pedigree that the other Sephardim have. We know that the Megillah does not have Shem Hashem. We know that it doesn't take place in Eretz Israel. We think there's really no nevuah of which to speak um, in the Megillah. And so it was questionable as, as to whether or not it even warranted to be part of the canon. Um, and so I'd like to say that if we had to sort of pinpoint a genre for this Megillah, I'm going to use a word, I looked it up on Wikipedia, it's a real word, <laughs> it's called cryptology. Cryptology is a type of writing where the message is encrypted, and in order to decipher what the book is saying, you would need a code book, and the code book would be the key, and as you'd read this cryptology, you would use the code to sort of figure out what it was really saying. Now, why would Megillat Esther have to even be written this way? Why does it have to be written in a way that the casual reader wouldn't just be able to get the message right away? I mean, that would make the most sense. Well, if we think about where and when and by whom the Megillah was written, let's get the by whom out of the way for a minute because I can't tell you for certain, either it was Esther, tradition says maybe Mordechai, or they collaborated, possibly Daniel wrote it, Anshe Knesset HaGedolah later on adapted it into the Sefer that it is today, but everybody agreed on this one style of writing, which was, and that's probably why it's called Megillat Esther, because it's a style that forces the reader, legalot, to reveal hester, that which is hidden in the Megillah. And again, we didn't answer, so why write a book like that? And if we think about the time period in which it was written, the Megillah was written at a time we were guests in a host country. We had to be very politically correct. We had to be careful what we said. We had to be careful how we said it. We were uh, under the scrutiny 
of censorship. If they didn't like what we said, this book would not be here for us to read and enjoy today. And imagine for a second what the Megillah would have read like, how the reporters would have reported the story had we not had this issue. I mean, did we really believe that Achashverosh was as innocent as the Megillah makes him to be? So if we start to think along those lines, we start to realize that the Megillah was written, so to speak, with one hand tied behind its back. And every now and then the Megillah is going to elbow us. It's going to push us and prod us. And how is it going to do that? Remember I told you the code book? Well, the code book for the Megillah is Sefer Torah. And so now I'd like you to see the Megillah as a book that was written and intended for the casual, secular reader to read as an exciting, fantastical drama and novel. But for the person, Hamevin Yavin, for the person who has a background in Torah, in Tanakh, there are going to be words and phrases that are going to be very deliberately and specifically used so that they could deliver a message without actually having to say it. So what? It, let me give you a couple of examples. When the Megillah starts out, and just a small technical announcement, you do have source sheets in front of you, and that's because I didn't want you to have to feel that you had to try and write everything down. I want you to know that most of what I'm going to say is in some shape or form on your source sheets. I also left my email on the source sheet, so if you want me to email you a copy of the PowerPoint, or you have any other questions, I'll be happy to share them with you. But for the purpose of this class, if you just stay facing forward, you'll get all the information. What's on the source sheet is going to ultimately be here, up on the screen anyway. So I wanted to look at the way, and always the way a sefer opens up, is going to be very indicative it's going to set the tone for the rest of the Sefer. So our Megillah starts out, Vayhi bimei Achashverosh, Hu Achashverosh, Hamolech mehodu ve'adkush, Sheva ve'esrim u'me'a medina. The casual reader says, oh, very nice. This is, okay, if we want to be a little bit sharper, Megillah starts out with Vayhi. We know Vayhi usually means there's going to be impending doom, something bad is going to happen. So we might think that we already caught on to the message of the Megillah just by noticing the little introduction. But if we take a closer look and we think about it and we say to ourselves, gee, where do I have a king who is introduced just like that? And the text is going to be so apologetic about the fact that they're just calling him Achashverosh in the introduction that they're going to have to go backwards and pedal upstream and say, oh wait, I have to tell you who he is. Who Achashverosh Hamolech Mehodu Ve'atkush. In case you're not sure who he is, let me tell you something else about him. He's the one that is ruling. It doesn't call him a Melech. And so right away, we read this and we say to ourselves, gee, really, why not just call It's going out of its way to be uh, cryptic, to not tell us who he is. And why might that be? Because when, if we want to really recognize how this introduction is so unusual, all we have to do is think about the way Vashti is introduced. You see, when Vashti comes on the scene, she's always, when she's supposed to be called to the king, when the king sends out a message for her to come at his bidding, she's called what? Vashti Hamalka. Vatema'en. But when she refuses to come, she's called Hamalka Vashti. And that tiny little we, the sharp readers, we realize that that tiny little flip from Vashti Hamalka to Hamalka Vashti is the whole story. The text is going to call her by her regal royal titles, 
so that we, the reader, could recognize that in this marriage, on this throne, she is the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. They don't say that, of course. And what is Achashverosh? He's nothing but a plus one. They call him a consort in today's language. Meaning what? I can't go out and write a sefer because she's nowhere to be found anymore. And he's the one on the throne. So the writer, the author has to say, gee, how am I going to let the people know that really Achashverosh is what? Is second tier. And now it helps us understand even more why he gets so infuriated when she doesn't follow his orders. He wants to prove a point. He has an inferiority complex because he's the plus one, because she's the one with all the titles. He's trying to shift the power in his favor. And what ends up happening? She's not going to take it. And as we start to look a little closely at the Megillah, we say, hey, wait a minute. Since we're looking at how the personalities are being introduced, well, let's see. What do they say about Mordechai? Let's see how he's introduced. He's introduced as an Ish Yehudi. He, the word Ish in Tanakh means he's a person of import. They give us his name and then they say, Ben Ya'ir, Ben Shim'i, Ben Kish. And then once again they tell us he is an Ish Yemini. And they go out of their way, not to call him only, not only to call him an Ish one time, but to call him an Ish twice. And there's also a little bit of an ambivalence that the reader starts to ask themselves, gee, is he an Ish Yehudi? Because we talk about the Yehudim in the Megillah. Or is he from what? From Shevet Yehuda. Is he from Shevet Yehuda? Or is he from Shevet Binyamin, or what's the most exciting answer of all? Both, correct. Why both? Why is that so exciting? All we've been having until now is this problem of who is going to be the leading, uh, uh, the ruling party. Who is going to lead us forward? Is it the house of Shaul? Is it the house of David? Imagine, says the Torah, that there's going to come a person that's going to embody what? Both of those things. This is going to be the one man who's going to be able to unify us, who's going to be able to move us forward. And the fact that it says Ben, 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 it gives us the sense that he comes from a, a dynasty, as opposed to Achashverosh, who comes from what? Nothing. He doesn't have a Ben, he doesn't have a son, and he doesn't have a father. He, he came from out of thin air, practically. Now it starts to get a little juicy. <laughs> now there's always a villain. Every story has a villain. And now this villain we have is who? Haman ben Hamedata Ha'aragi. Who is he? Well, if I'm going to tell you about Mordechai, let me tell you a couple of things about Haman. What do we know about him? Well, we know he comes from Agag. And Agag, we know, was king of Amalek. Good. And where does Amalek come from? Well, we know that uh, Amalek comes from Eliphaz, the son of Esav. And suddenly, the lights open up for us. And we start to see a story unfolding and emerging. We have on one side descendant of who? We know he's from Binyamin, but if I just went up one more generation, who would I find? Yaakov. Good. So we have Yaakov is pitted up against who? Esav. And so readers, as we move forward through the text, remember I told you this cryptology business. I want you to now look at this story through a prism of the Yitzchak Esav drama. Well, first thing we're going to learn, I'm sorry, Yaakov and Esav drama. First thing we hear in the Megillah, 
what's the big catalyst? What's the big, I mean, if we really read this without knowing that it was a text trying to tell us something else, the question would be, what's the big deal? Just bow down and finish. And I think I'll if it's going to save your life. I know they say he was wearing an idol and all that, but forget about that. The text really doesn't explain for us why Mordechai won't bow down. And we're stuck. Call of the Amalek. Everybody's willing to bow down. They're all doing what they're supposed to do. Over and over. Ooh, Mordechai, one stickler in the bunch. Mordechai, what happens with him? And it's because he won't do this. Haman sees the story. And what is his reaction? The rest of the story that takes place, this is the catalyst for it. But now we know this is just part. This is just a continuation of an earlier story. This conflict that we're going to see in Shushan didn't start in Shushan. It started years and years ago. You know when it started? It started when Yaakov took Esav's blessing. What was that blessing again? Oh yeah, wait, we're lucky we have it right here. Right. Fantastic. The blessing is that the nations are going to do what? If you're Mordechai and you're the descendant of Yaakov, then what do you think that you have going for you? What do you think you have going for you? I don't bow down to the other nations. The other nations bow down to me. I have a wa. I have a beracha. I have a beracha that came from Yitzchak. And so now we find ourselves in a little bit of a problem. And what's this problem? You see, Esav thinks, or Haman thinks, that he's Mordechai thinks he's a descendant of and so what do we have here we have a little bit of a problem we have to go back a little bit further in history and we have to remember that yes Yaakov did get the blessing there was just one little problem that we like to leave out sometimes and the problem is that when Yaakov in Parashat Vayishlach when he's coming back from Lavan's house you remember that story? And there's 400 men of Esav coming to greet him. Remember that story? What does Yaakov do? He doesn't just bow. You are correct. He bows seven times. I mean, go with a cyclical number. You're going to go with the number seven. I'm going to undo anything that was done in the natural world with that number seven. He's going to bow seven times to Esav. And when he bows, he doesn't just bow. He bows, and his wives bow, and his children bow. And if you ask me, at that point, what was he expressing? He was relinquishing the beracha that he got from his father. He's saying, look, brother, daddy said that you would be bowing down to me. But guess what? Look here. It's me now who's bowing down to you. So in essence, he's forfeiting his beracha. Now, there's one, always, there's always that little uh, yotam, there's always that one little spark, there's always that one little pachshemen, so to speak. Always. We read this, we're ready to cry, hang up our gloves and say it's over. But it's not over. There's always that one little Pachshem. And who might that be? Binyamin. I love you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Binyamin. What's with Binyamin? He's the only one that never bows. Why doesn't he bow? He wasn't born yet. How could he bow if he wasn't born yet? And so who becomes the new inheritor who becomes the person who's now carrying the beracha? You know, when it, when it comes to inheritances, right? 
if your son can't inherit, your brother inherits. So the brother inherited. But what happens if a son is born? It goes right back to that son and Binyamin is now holding that deed. Binyamin is now holding the position of being the uh, one that is going to be the leader or the monarch. And maybe, perhaps, that's why Yaakov never lets Binyamin go down to Mitzrayim. Maybe, I know, we say, we think he's, he's afraid that something's going to happen to him like it happened to Yosef, and he is. But maybe what he's most afraid of is that the heir to the throne, if something happens to him, then the entire destiny of the Jewish people is going to revert back to who? To Esav. And that's why, perhaps, we have this term, nafsho kishura benafsho. Their souls are tied together because without Binyamin, the destiny, the legacy of Yaakov is kaputnik. It's over. As a matter of fact, the same exact term, nafsho kishura benafsho, is going to be used later on when? When Binyamin is going to return the mantle of leadership to Yehuda. <coughs> Let's think about it for a minute. When Yaakov blesses Yehuda, what does he tell him? He uses the exact words that his father told him. Yishtachavu lecha bene imecha. Why does he say that? It's not his to give. Binyamin knows that. And it goes from Binyamin through the family of Kish, through Yonatan to David in order. And that replaced that uh, exchange from, of hands of leadership is going to be phrased with that same exact Yonatan and David are also going to have the same phrase, Nafsho Keshura Benafsho. And now everything from here we should be able to move like this. Once you accept that this is a story, a continuation of the Yaakov Esav story, everything else, I don't even have to click my my PowerPoint. I'll just show you one. I mean, if this was a smaller classroom, I'd show you one and you'd tell me its counterpart. But for the sake of time, we'll run through it quickly together. What do you think is happening when Haman sees that Mordechai won't bow down to him? It's in his DNA. What do you think he's going to be experiencing? What emotion is the most common emotion for a son of Amalek or a son of Esav? Of course he's going to be filled with Chema. That's the text's cryptology peeking its way through again, saying, you see, I just want to tell you what Haman is angry about. He's not just angry about Mordechai. He's hundreds of years of angry. This has been brewing for a very long time. I don't think that Chama of his Achicha has Tashuved anytime soon. Because it's still alive and well. And as we move, the words he uses, Vayivez. I don't see what's great about this is once you have the key, which you all have, the key is the Torah. And the writers expected us to be able to do this. This should be second nature for us. I, we should only see this. Oh, By the way, I don't even need that. I could have just said, Start from there after the one. Boom. I don't even need that first. It's so verbose. It's so unnecessary. The language is just ridiculous. If there was an editor, that whole first few words would have been completely deleted already. But we know that Baivez is really part of our story. Why is he still being Baivez? He never got over the first Baivez. He never got over the fact that he ended up and one of these days we could have a whole class on Vayivis and put them all on the chart. But for today, he never got over the, the fact that that Bechorat changed hands and that word is there to uh, confirm that for us. 
And then we have Mordechai. Oy, I love this stuff. Mordechai yada et kol asher na'asa. What did he know? What was na'asa? What was the kol asher na'asa that he knew? He understood everything. He was a pretty sharp guy. I told you. He's Yemini. He's Yehudi. He's going to be the Gadol Hador for his people. He's going to be the one to save us. He's got to be a little bit on his A-game. And he's sharp enough to realize that if Haman is going to destroy the entire nation, it's not just because of his little curtsy that didn't make the cut. So what is he saying here? Look what Mordechai does. You could cry when you see this. What does he do? The first thing he does, he tears his begadim. Begadim? What does that remind us of? Big day, maybe? Maybe that clothing that he took so that he could fool his father? Well, if Mordechai realizes that this is a result of that situation, the first thing he's going to do is say, what? I'm out of here. Get these clothes off of me. I want nothing to do with begadim. From the word? Ashamnu, bagadnu, beged, boged. It means treachery. I got to get this treacherous jacket off me as quickly as humanly possible. He puts on sakva efed. We're going to talk about some of the other words. But the words from here on in in the Megillah, only vayilbash. There's no more, and there's a ton of clothing. He's going to be rid, ridden on a horse with clothing. No more begadim. All that clothing is going to be called levush. And so, I don't have to tell you, this is a famous one. I can't take credit for this one. So when Mordechai goes out, when he goes out, you could just hear it from, from the way the, the text is. I know it's in red, so it looks even worse than <laughs> in print. But it's a ze'aka. A ze'aka is a sound of anguish that is way, way more intensified then the Vayitzak, with a Tzadi, versus with a Zion, the one with a Zion is way more intensified. And of course it should be. Because if we're going to cause somebody to Vayitzak, if we're going to cause somebody pain and anguish, and we took something that belonged to theirs, and we're going to make them also cry while we're at it, then what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen? There is going to be a price to pay. And there's going to be an Evel Gadola Yudim and Som and Bechi because Vayisa Esav, there's a little kolo over there <laughs> off the page, Vayevk, and he's going to cry. And so it becomes pretty easy. Even the terminology, even the terminology, Esther could have told the king a bazillion things. She had a hundred opportunities, she made two parties. She had enough time to think of what she was going to say. And so what does she say? Of all the words to choose, she says, Kinim Karno. Now, I don't know if really Esther said this to Achashverosh, but it doesn't matter because that's what's recorded for us. The Megillah is written for our purposes. It's not a newspaper so that we could find out what the goings-on were at the time. It's here for our generation to read, and it's going to use the word nimkarnu. Why? Because it wants us to be very sensitive to something very particular. And what would that be? Of course, we are being sold because of an illegitimate, inappropriate sale that we had made earlier on with Esav. And so as we move along, this is one of my favorites, so I'll take an extra minute here if you don't mind. This is very strange language at the end of the Megillah. Again, the authors had at their disposal a lot of ways to describe the Jewish people not taking from the booty, right? But what language do they choose to use? And they don't just use it once. 
They don't just use it twice. <laughs> I'm having too much fun with this PowerPoint. <laughs> they don't just use it three times. The whole Megillah is going to revolve with this Bizar word. It's going to start with Bizar. It's going to end with Bizar. But this terminology, Come on. It's telling us something very specific. What is it saying? I'm hanging out with you guys <laughs> too long. What is it saying? It's saying, you know those Yadayim? Which Yadayim? Oh yeah. Those very Yadayim, the ones that Yaakov had used so that he could perpetuate a deceit on his father. You know those Yadayim? Those Yadayim did something that is not very, uh, um, is not, it's being frowned upon at this time in history and was even frowned upon back then. And so these Yadayim that did something that was pretty um, inappropriate, and you may want to argue and say, a sale is a sale. Vayim koret bechorato. And I'm here to tell you, just because you have the right to take something, it doesn't always make it right for you to take it. And so here the text is telling us, you know what? Good for them. I'm going to tell it to you three times. Because there, they were allowed to take from the bizarre. At that point, I went backwards. At that point, they were allowed. Everything was fair game. But they didn't take what they were allowed to take because they should never have taken what they were allowed to take earlier on. And so another interesting thing, since we're on the subject of Yadayim, we should know that wherever there is Amalek, there are Yadayim. Why? What's an easy way to remember that? Hayadayim Yede'esav, right? What does that mean, Hayadayim Yede'esav? Later on in Shemot, when Amalek comes to fight with Yisrael in Refidim, right? I don't know if you could see it in the back there, but the word Yadayim appears a perfect amount of times. The word Yadayim appears exactly seven times, and it's no coincidence that the word Amalek also appears seven times. And a tiny little, I'm not a big gematria person, but I can't help it, it fits too well. From this point to the end of the Torah, the word Amalek is going to appear 14 times, the exact numerical value of the word Yad. So I couldn't help myself. I even want you to notice in the war with Amalek, the term that they use, what does it remind you of? Don't just think that the Megillah is echoing the Torah. The Torah is also going to be foreshadowing the Megillah as well. And then you see the obvious, uh, the Ayef story, right? Esav comes in and he's Ayef. And, of course, what's the retribution? Later on, when we are Ayef, that's exactly when Amalek feels that they could attack us. We, had, we got him when he was Ayef. He's going to get us when we're Ayef. And I put that Velo Yare Elohim in red because I wanted you to think about who is that talking about? Is it talking about Amalek? Is it talking about B'nai Israel? And the text leaves it pretty ambiguous because it sort of wants to let us know that at any time that there's not Yirat Elohim on either side, there is this danger of having Amalek enter the scene. And I just brought this for you just for the sake of showing you, even in Shmuel Aleph, we have, talking about Agag, the king of Amalek, we have the Cherev. I forgot to tell you, whenever we fight Amalek, we fight them with the Cherev al-Chorbecha 
Tichyeh, the Cherev, plays a major role. And then we have, I just put a couple of Pesukim here, we have the Nimbeza, Vayizak, Vayikra. We have the same language is going to be trailing us throughout history because it's a family of words, because it's a family of circumstances. And this is my best part. <sighs> so now, I know you came to hear about it, Kanis did, and all I did was talk to you about Mordechai, Haman, and Yaakov, and Esav. But this, to me, is the whole story. We're sitting here right now. I, I still can't believe how lucky we are to learn in a magnificent place. This wonderful world of Herzog has opened my eyes, and I'm sure all of yours as well. One of the things that we learn here is that there is there is perfection. There is perfection to the way the Torah was written. The author, I always say with a capital A, Hashem, the author wrote his work perfectly. If we think there's an imperfection in the work, then it's not in the Torah, but it's within our own selves. And so this class was originally going to be about Yaakov and Esav and Mordechai and Haman, and we were going to all be very happy, except there was a little problem with that. You see, chapter 25 talks about the birth of the twins and the sale of the birthright. And in tra- chapter 25, we have the famous uh, nevuah that Hashem gives to Rivka. And he tells her, Shne goyim bebitnech, veshne leumim mime'ayich yeparedu, uleom mileom ye'ematz, verav ye'avod tsair. I'd like to take a little bit of a license today to say whatever you think it means it does. But besides that, I think this is also a little bit of a precursor for what takes place in the Megillah. Because there are going to be Shnei Goyim. There are going to be two nations. And they are going to have, they're going to be two Leumim, they're going to have two different cultures. Amongst the Goyim. There's no question that they're going to be totally different people and totally different cultures. But Rivka was told originally, Uleom Mileom Ye'ematz. These words, uleom mileom ye'ematz, are usually defined as one nation will be greater than the other nation. I'd like to suggest today, from the phrase, me'almim alumim, Yosef is actually going to interpret this better than I ever could. What was he doing in the Sadeh? When they were me'almim alumim? And they were bundling themselves together? Right? There was, there was, Chavaya, is that what you said? Hishtachavaya. Bowing, that's beautiful, there was bowing, I didn't think of that, thank you. There was bowing, fantastic. But there was a sense of binding and unity. So, in a perfect world could mean that one nation can be strengthened from the other nation, by the other nation. And it doesn't mean that the greater, it could mean that, the greater will serve the younger, but how about if Rav, Harbeh, much, plenty, the younger one is going to have to put in a lot of effort, and we see that he does. We see it with Binyamin. We see it with David. He's even the youngest one of his own family. We see that this could actually be seen another way, but that's not the exciting part. The exciting part is that Panic 25 starts out with the birth of the twins and the sale of the birthright. And then, of course, I left you a little bit in suspense. I know some of you already know, and if you don't, you could peek in your humashim. But hold your horses for one second. Chapter 27, we have Yaakov posing as a sab to get the blessing. So what's happening over here? We have chapter 25, the boys are born. Chapter 27, they get a beracha. And we have something in the middle disrupting the story. It's interrupting us. It's in the way. Actually, 
my friend Katie could attest. She's my lifelong friend and the person who introduced me to this program, so I have a tremendous hakarata to her. I called her up in the middle of the night when I realized what chapter 26 was about. And the only reason I came to knowing, I, I hope you're in a little bit of a suspense. I'm going for that <laughs> vibe of suspense. The suspense is chapter 26 has nothing to do with nothing. Chapter 26, oh, I'm going to have to show you, is about Rivka and Yitzchak by Avimelech in Gerar. You see, this is what happens. By the way, we have Gita Nufeld here with us also. She's the director, and she was also my technical director of the Allegra Franco School of Educational Leadership. And we teach at the Allegra that if there is a non sequitur, if there is a story, and it doesn't go in order with his story, that this guy in the middle has to be given attention. But Chatati Aviti Pashati, four months, I was highlighting chapters 25, 26, and 27 on the computer, making it a size 8, so I could see the whole thing on my screen at the same time. And in order that I could make it a size 11, I would highlight chapter 26 and get rid of it, because it has nothing to do with my story. I don't want to hear about Yivkai Nitzchak and Abimelech. What does that have to do with me? And so that I could focus on this story as we did today, I kept getting rid of this. But I said, really? Not appropriate. I know we teach. I'm, I'm the one teaching this to my girls, and I'm the first one to be deleting a whole pedic. Not right. So one day, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I don't know what made me say, what happens if we actually leave this right in its very rightful place. If we leave this in its rightful place, we look at Rivka, and what do we see? Oh my gosh. Why am I saying oh my gosh? Because the same exact way that Esther is being described, Rivka is being described. I start scratching my head. I said, could it be? Let's look a little further. So, of course, they're both described as having this uh, beauty, na'ara, betula, tovat mar'eh, their physical beauty. That's great, but it's still not enough to make a whole class about it. So we go and we see, oh, you know something? Sometimes you have to think about the context of the story and the storyline itself. And you say, you know, Rivka, there were a lot of women in the, in the ear, but only one woman was chosen from all of those ladies when Eved Abraham, notice I didn't say uh, Eliezer, only one woman is chosen, and that woman is Rivka. Well, so too with this dad. There's a bunch of Ne'arot Rabot in Shushan Abira. What are the chances that our estate is going to be the one that's chosen? And this one blew me away. I had no idea. I'm sorry. I must have read chapter 26 a hundred times. Never dawned on me to even notice or pay attention to the fact that there was a mishteh. Did you know that Rivka sat down and had a mishteh with Avimelech and Yitzchak? I was clueless, but now that I saw it, I told you, sometimes... The Torah is a precursor for what's to come. And in this case, sure enough, what happens? We have this same Mishteh story with Esther, but it gets a little bit more exciting than that. Yitzchak loves her, and the Melech loves her. Right? The term Chesed appears for both of them. And then we have this terminology. When Rivka comes to the tent of Yitzchak, it says about Yitzchak, Vainachem Yitzchak achare imo. He's comforted. She is the woman who's going to take the place in his life of another woman. Which, of course, who is that for in our story of the Megillah? Of course, Vayam tachat vashti. But she doesn't just replace a woman. What kind of a woman does she replace? How do you like this one? How about if I tell you that Sarah was a hundred 
and 27 years old. So Rivka is replacing a woman of 127. Come on, you do the math. What do we have? Of course we do. We have Esther replacing a woman of 127 as well. Rivka is the cousin, as Esther is the cousin. And this one I really love. What's happening here? Why did I put this pasuk up here? Why is, what does this have to do with our story? She can't reveal her identity to the king. I don't even have to click this button, but we'll do it because we have it. Also, same story. Even in the story of the, you know what happens when you start to see similarities? You find two or three, and then boom, 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 they all start bombarding you. Look at me, look at me, look at me. And they all start to come out. And you start to think about the story. You know, Rivka also had heard about a plot for somebody to be killed. And she also gives a warning to the person who stands to be the victim. Do I have to click the button or you know already? Same story. Remember? Biktan and Teresh? Do you remember that Esther gets word and she goes and she tells the Melech that he's about to get killed and she tells him about the plot? Same story. Then we have this phrase, Maharish Lada'at. It really talks about the Eved of Abraham when he's waiting to choose to see whether or not God heard his prayer to find a suitable wife for Yitzchak. He is Maharish and he's waiting for Da'at. And this is probably, we're going to spend some time with it on it a little later. It's one of my favorite of the Pesukim. This phrase, Haharesh Taharishi, Umi Yodeya, there is this same feeling of there needs to be a certain sense or time for silence, for focus inward, and that will bring out understanding. Where does Yitzchak stand? Actually, I'm sorry. Where does Rivka stand when she prays to the Melech, to the king of the world, of course, Borei Olam? Esther and Rivka are both positioning themselves lenochach bet hamelech. And they both are beseeching, they're asking for life-sustaining uh, um, favors. And now, this one's my favorite of all. Not because anybody's clumsy or anything like that. The younger kids like that aspect of it. But there's a way more sophisticated aspect that takes place here. So when Rivka first meets Yaakov, what does she do? Excuse me. When, it's, when Rivka first meets Yaakov, she didn't even meet him. Oh, gosh. I hope they erase that part. I'll say it again. When Rivka first meets Yitzchak, she falls from the Gamal. And we think it's pretty hysterical. I mean, if you really think about it, if I was there, I'd be cracking up. That's like a very funny thing to happen to somebody. Except that when we start to see it here, it's not so funny anymore. When Esther goes, and she wants to speak to the king, she throws herself before his feet. And this is another thing we do at Allegra. We can't help ourselves. We like to take words and look at them and calculate them. And so in today's day and age, with the thesauruses that are electronic today, it doesn't take a genius. I just said, let me plug in Vatipol and see what happens. And sure enough, what happens? Seven women fall in Tanakh. Seven specific women fall in Tanakh. If this was homework, I'd ask you to go home and let me know who they are. Um, so the seven specific women fall in Tanakh is really something very significant. It's the way that the text wants to tell us. You know how Rivka fell? And you know how Esther fell? 
it wasn't a loss of footing or an imbalance that was taking place. When women in Tanakh fall, we have to pay very close attention because it's going to signify something very specific. And so by falling, Esther is now channeling her inner comrades who've fallen before her. Rivka, we spoke about. Ruth, when does Ruth fall? She falls in front of Boaz and she says, what? I can't believe that you are Lehakireni, that you are recognizing me even though I am a Nochria. So when it comes to falling like Ruth, perhaps Esther is saying, I may not have any type of political allegiance that you're aware of, she wasn't saying where she was from. So you really have at this point, why? No reason to accommodate me. But I am going to fall so that hopefully, like Ruth, I will find favor in your eyes, even though I may or may not be worthy. When she falls, this is a little gruesome, so if there's any young kids in the crowd, cover their ears. When she falls like the Pilegish Begiv'ah, you want to cry when you read this stuff. It's, it really, it, 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 it gets me. Pilegish Begiv'ah. And by the way, when I made this little search, I was burning. I didn't want to have to talk about Pilegish Begiv'ah. But first of all, what Giv'ah is it? Giv'at Binyamin. Of course she's going to fall like Pilegish Begiv'ah. First of all, she's not just falling in front of King Achashverosh. Let's establish that. She's falling in front of the king of the world. And she's saying, don't allow our women to become like Pilegesh Begiv'ah. If you don't save us, if the Yeshua doesn't come, we're going to find ourselves what? In the same situation as the Pilegesh Begiv'ah, our women are going to be, God forbid, violated. You have it in your hands to save us. No, the dire emergency, the state of emergency is like the Pilegish Begiv'awas. And then Abigail, who doesn't love Abigail? What's her story? She's the wife of Naval Hakarmeli. And just to get you through the story quickly, she convinces David not to kill her husband Naval. And she convinces him by saying what? There go those hands again, right? You don't want his blood on your on your hands. And what is she telling the king? And what is the Megillah telling us? If these people die because Haman put money in your treasury, I just want to make sure that the records show that their blood is on your hands. So like Abigail... She's saying, please, you have an opportunity here to save human lives. Isha Tekoit. I call her Tekoit. I don't even know if that's how you spell it in English, but she's from Tekoa, if that helps you. Um, she's from the book of Shemuel Bet. And she's the one who gives a parable to David so that he will allow Avshalom back into the good graces of David, and specifically back into the palace. And the Isha Tekoit is also known as an Isha Chachama. Exactly. She's also called an Isha Chachama. And so when we're hearing Esther, don't think for one minute that she's this clumsy, groveling, panicking person. She's very, she's speaking with Chokmah of the ages, literally. I, I, I know I keep saying each one's my favorite, but for sure... The Shunamit. Do you love the Shunamit? Who doesn't love her? You know who she is? I'll just give you a quick background on her. Do you remember there was a man, his name was Elisha, and he used to travel through town, and a woman made a room for him, and he said, how could I thank you? And then she says, I don't need anything, I don't need anything. He said, I see you don't have any children. Next year, this time, you'll have a child. And sure enough, what happens the child, I'm really giving you the cliff notes on this one. <laughs> the child is about to die. Excuse me. The child dies. She says, go call for me, Elisha. 
and he does literally what? Mouth to mouth. He resuscitates the child. And we have to hear it in the context of this story. What is Esther saying? What are the authors telling us? At this point in time, when Esther falls before the king, do you know what's going on? B'nai Israel doesn't have a pulse. That's how we are. We're like the child of the Ishashunamit. It's going to take a miracle. A mouth-to-mouth to somebody who no longer has a pulse and hasn't been breathing. That's what it's going to take to save the Jewish people. And that's where Esther is channeling all of these, sending all of these messages through the words that the Tanakh use. And so, if we just take a step back and we want to ask ourselves a couple of questions. So, <laughs> we have Yaakov and Esav. We parallel them to Mordechai and Haman. Then we took Rivka and we paralleled her to Esther. And all that is the fun part when you're preparing a class, but then you're stuck with this sound in the back of your head nagging at you saying, so what? So what do you want to do with all that? Okay, I'm very happy. It's nice. They match, they match, but that doesn't make a class. That is not a shiur. You need to explain what, what we get from that. Where, where are we going with this, so to speak? So that was just what we call the maza, the appetizer. <laughs> I think the key lies in Esther's greatest moment. I call this her greatest moment. So what happens? Mordechai goes to send word to Esther and he tells her, Al tedami ben Avshech. Dam and nefesh is another little interesting uh, play on words. <coughs> Don't think that you're just going to run away to the Beth HaMelech and save yourself because you have a priority and, uh, you know, you are a VIP. You better know this one little thing, Esther. If you are hacharesh tacharishi at this time, don't worry. Revach vehatzala yaamod laYudim imakom acher. But at ubet avich tovedun. Know this, you. If you think you're going to take refuge in the palace, know the consequence. The consequence is at ubet avich tovedun, and I'm scratching my head and I'm saying at ubet avich tovedun. What's wrong with this picture? At ubet avich. What? 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 What's the story? She doesn't have a father. She doesn't have a mother. Who are we afraid for? I know bet avich. We're talking about what? Her ancestors, maybe. It's not a very practical thing to tell a person whose ancestors aren't here anyway, anymore. That doesn't make any sense to anybody in the real world. But when the Megillah says these words, we have to pay very close attention. This is what you have to love. <laughs> you see this and you say, I got it. Who's the only person in the world that never had an Av or an M? Chava! There's nobody... Some people want to think there's somebody, but there's nobody that doesn't have an Av or an M. Give me a break. Except for Chava. And the text is taking us back to Chava at this point. Chava? Why are you taking me to Chava? Why are you taking me to Chava in the context of Hacharish Tacharishi? See, what happens? When Chava and Adam sinned, and Adam got his punishment. We got a very bad rap for a minute. Don't panic. Hashem tells Adam, Ul Adam Amar, Ki shamata lekol ishtecha, and you ate from the tree that I told you not to eat from. Henceforth, curse upon curse is going to come upon you and the land. And if there was a sof pasuk, a big three pairs, and we closed the book there, we would have been in big trouble. Except for what? We thought with Chava that the woman was supposed to be Hacharesh Tacharishi. We thought that Hashem silenced women after they ate from the fruit. But who came to save the day? Everybody, every woman in this room knows it. I know you have bumper stickers. I know you have this written all over your kitchens. Sarah, what happened with her? 
Hashem Elohim actually tells Abraham, Kol Asher Tomar Elecha Sarah Shma Bekola. Who's going to redeem Chava? Sarah. And now, who's going to redeem or continue the legacy that Sarah initiated? Oh boy, is she going to continue this legacy in a big way. First, we know that Rivka is the one who is going to say Shema Bekoli. She's not going to just say it one time, of course. She's going to say it three times. But you should know that when it comes to women speaking, she's the first woman to speak to her child. And so not only is she going to speak, she is going to be able to transmit to the next generation a message. And she's going to say, Shma Bekoli, Shma Bekoli, Shma Bekoli, three times, it's a chazaka. She's insistent. And how does she convince Yaakov to Shma Bekola, to listen to her? She gives him an assurance. And she says, don't you worry, my son. I will take care of anything that goes wrong. If there's a kelala to happen instead of a beracha, don't you worry. I will be in control of it. <clears throat> and so what's so beautiful? She made a neder. And in her lifetime, she wasn't able to keep it because she had no idea what kelala, what balagan was going to come from it. All of these generations later, did she ever imagine the Mordechai Haman disaster? She didn't. She couldn't have. And I think halachically, if you make a neder and you say that you didn't realize the ramifications of that neder, then you could have that neder. Uh, you could have a hatara for that neder. You could have it annulled. But last week's perasha put it over the top for me. I can't help it. Notice what it says. That if a man hears a neder of his wife, right? If if her husband silences her when he hears her, then what's going to happen? Then she doesn't have, then she, excuse me, if he's, I apologize. If he is silent when she makes a neder, she has to keep her neder. Notice the words for annulling a vow. Thank you. Who said that? Im hafer yafer otam. What kind of words are those? Hafer yafer. What is that? Hafer yafer. Oh, we know. We know that is what? Purim. So what does Purim do for us? It gives us an opportunity to be able to do hatarat nedarim for whom? Not just for ourselves, but for past generations. I'll explain it. You see, Rivka had said, why should I have to mourn you? Both on one day. That's why she sends Yaakov away. And of course, what happens in the Megillah? Exactly what she had foreshadowed on one day on the 13th day of the 12th month. Her two sons, so to speak, are poised to kill each other. And then what happens? When Esther and Mordechai say, please, could you retract those letters of extermination? And the king says, I'm sorry, but letters that have been written cannot be retracted. Where does that come from? Well, after the beracha was given, Esav says, what about me? And he says, look, I can't take the beracha away from him. I'll give you another beracha. The way we'll write a new set of letters. Don't worry about it. But when the Megillah goes out of its way to tell us that in the 10th month of the 7th year, Esther was taken, what do I care when she was taken? Why do I have to know that day? What do I know about the 10th of the 7th? I know about the 10th of the 7th that that is Yom Kippur. And I know that if I do Melacha Veha'avadati, same way that Esther says, please, Sumu, Purim 
is a national Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is v'initem et nafshotechem. Is personal. It's between you and God. Yes, there's Adam lechavero, but Purim. That's a national day. That's the day that we could nationally atone for each other. We could do a national hatara for each other. And that's why we have Mori Veribi, Harav Yoni Grossman here, who introduced me to the wonderful world of the Megillah and showed this as the center of a chiastic structure. You should go online and read it. This center is to tell us that not only was Ahasuerus the one who was opening the Sefer Hazichronot, he wasn't the only Melech to open that Sefer Hazichronot. Of course it was Avinu Shebashamayim, and I'll end with this. This is why I'd like to suggest that we celebrate the holiday with Mishloach Manot Ish Lere'ehu, Umatanot La'evyonim. It's a very strange way to celebrate a holiday in which we were almost annihilated. Cellophane and ribbons is a very strange way to go. Except if we understand that what we're giving is retribution. We're giving back manot that we should have given to our brothers originally. And we have to give it ready to be eaten because Esav needed it to be eaten. And I'll leave with this last thought. One of the things that our nation does better than anybody else is when there's a nation in hunger... And there's a, anybody in trouble. Magen David Adom is the first ones there. Am Yisrael Chai. Let's hope and pray that as a zafkut of being a people who are unified and generous, we will see the redemption. Bimherabe Amen. Amen.